my observation has been that there's been a lot more mainstream exposure to private market investing. And so I think net net would be great for, for the industry and for, for more companies to, to get started. But um, if I had to pick, I would say former, former founder operators, uh, more interesting journey into venture. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Michael Tam, a partner at Craft Ventures. In this conversation, we talk about a couple of their interesting portfolio companies and the behind the scenes of the operations of a venture firm. If you're interested in venture investing, startups, this is going to be a good one. Enjoy my conversation with Michael Tam. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So, Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious to start things off for folks. Um, you know, we, we've covered some some folks on the show that have their own VC firm that, you know, they've, they've, you know, started up or spun off or got into after a specific entrepreneurial experience. Um, but your story is, is distinct in terms of, of career arcs that we've covered in past episodes. So can you talk to us about how, if at all, your life changed in moving from a principal to a partner at Craft Ventures? Sure. It might be good context to give uh, a quick background on craft to, to give more context there. But um, so craft were um, a multi-stage fund, really predominantly focused seed to growth stage wise, and usually post revenue check size could be anywhere from below a million up upwards of uh, 50 million. Uh, we usually lead rounds. We can also follow uh, sector wise, we're agnostic, uh, pre- predominantly focused on uh, all things B2B SaaS and marketplaces and really have a strong affinity for anything with a self-serve bottom-up sales motion. And the team, uh, I should stress, the team is consists of all former founders and operators, uh, both on the investment and operating side. And so that's really how we carry um, and drive the support to work alongside our, our, our portfolio companies. And so... To, to get back to the original question, going from principal to partner, you know, it's it's kind of fun by fund at Craft. We're pretty, it's a pretty team-oriented environment in terms of how we support um, the portfolio or how we approach uh, assessing a, a potential investment. And so whether it be functionally during the diligence process or domain-wise, given our different operating backgrounds, I don't really... You know, I, I've really been a principal for most of my time at Craft, and recently became a partner. Haven't, despite the short, uh, brief time as a partner, haven't really seen a um, significant difference just because of that team approach. You know, we we sort of call it swarming. You know, uh, either a diligence process or coming together to support a portfolio company. So there's not really, I think, explicit differences driven by the title. You know, we all source, we all drive our investments forward. We're all responsible for addressing questions that we feel from the team. And that's really across, you know, the investment team, despite what your title may be. And we're all expected to support our founders. So 
I would say at minimum, it's, it's a nice acknowledgement from, <laughs> from the team that uh, we're doing okay at our job, but uh, I don't think there's like a clear cut difference uh, really in the title, given how is we it, operate. It, so, so the, maybe not even just like a mechanical, like a, a certain check size that otherwise would have had to kind of go up a ladder for uh, uh, approval is, is, you know, maybe mildly changed. Yeah, I mean, there may be nuances. Um, it's a good question. There may be nuances, um, you know, across stage, you know, whether it be a seed or a growth check from craft. Um, and so there, there's, there's different thresholds, I guess, for getting to a decision. And we may have more, um, you know, ownership or ability to in, uh, pound the table and get to conviction on a check that's, you know, either a seed or series A. The framework of the, however, of, of um, sort of buy-in from the team is still consistent, but um, you're right. Like there may be, uh, you know, a shortened process for a, a seed check and, you know, having that, I guess, having a um, sort of elevation in, in the, the partner opportunity is also a result of just our, our, our track record at craft and our ability to um, continue to support the portfolio. So yeah, that, I think there are nuances by check size, um, but ultimately it's still directionally kind of a team effort here at Kraft. Makes sense. So um, one of the things that I always think about with, you know, any startup that I hear about is to some degree, you know, you can think of like an old Seth Godin book, like Purple Cow, where the marketing is almost like baked in, like it has a natural narrative, meme nature to it that you want to get to talking about it. And one of your portfolio companies, Chef, I think is, you know, whatever, whatever the, the sliding scale of that effect is, is pretty high up there. It is effectively Airbnb for dinner is one of the monikers that I've seen for it in one of the like TechCrunch articles or something. But this idea that you could get a home cooked meal, similar to like a, you know, a, a stay in a home as opposed to a hotel in this kind of platform approach. Uh, so maybe just tell me a little bit about you know, how a company like that gets on your radar, what the decision-making, you know, discussions or framework timelines are for making an investment into a company like that. Yeah. So Chef, um, Chef with an S, uh, chef.com is the, is the website, you know, to, to what you said, I think the, the uh, an apt analogy is Airbnb for restaurants, basically. It's a community-based platform uh, approach to offer and um, authentic cuisines for eaters, essentially, that we think won't really be available uh, in restaurants, um, you know, think of it as being able to purchase, um, you know, ideally you can down the line at scale, purchase food from your neighbor and experience the recipe that's been passed down, you know, generations in their family. Um, and, and, the and what enables that is, you know, the growing, um, infrastructure with comes their kitchens, as well as, uh, home kitchens, which can now sort of on a state-by-state basis be used, uh, as micro enterprises. And so, when we met the company, when I met the company, it was right after uh, YC. Um, I would say, I want to say it was Q2 of 2019. And we seeded, uh, we, we led the seed at that time and, and ultimately doubled down after that, um, leading into COVID almost a year later. But um, the process was um, kind of ad hoc, which is usually, I would say, how, how I would describe how we usually approach uh, assessing a business because they're so every business is unique. Um, I had grown up and um, with this behavior, uh, it was very intimate, personal to me. You know, my parents sort of, as an example, getting the homemade dumplings from family friends and sort of transacting in that manner. And, and we had learned it was also common behavior still today 
in WeChat and WhatsApp um, groups among you know, Chinese and Indian expat communities. And so in Chef at the time, I think was really resonating among Indian uh, families um, in the Bay where they were live. And so we thought that was an interesting wedge as, as a consumer behavior to that was trending toward this asset light approach to restaurants. And I still think we're early innings in you know, what a restaurant can look like and the dining experience for eaters, given the tech that's um, sort of happening and, and, and in the restaurant food, food space. So, you know, it was very much a personal, it was very much a personal driver that sparked my interest in Chef. And, you know, the company was performing well during YC and after YC. And um, frankly, we didn't realize that, um, you know, COVID would essentially accelerate the business, but that's, that's been the reality of the situation for them. Can you talk about the part about, uh, you said on a, a state-by-state basis, um, like residential kitchens being able to u- be used as kind of micro enterprises. Are, are, are you basically saying like something to the effect of, you know, these restaurants have their different um, safety, cleanliness type of evaluations. And and I'm guessing you're talk- referencing that, but can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, so it, it, it's state-by-state state, municipality by municipality, but um, I would say in regions, um, where their home cooking laws haven't yet been implemented, um, the chefs who work with Chef are required to cook out of um, commercial kitchens or other legal facilities that Chef offers. But um, uh, like in California, when we invested, there was a, a bill, AB 626, that um, was introduced that enabled home kitchens um, to be used as micro enterprises. So it really varies by state. At least that was my understanding back then. Today, um, for better, for worse, COVID has really catalyzed a lot of regulatory progress. You know, I, my, I checked in with the founders recently, and my understanding is there's, you know, over 40 home cooking bills that have now been introduced across 29 states in the last year, you know, and, and, and so that's, that's really been a tailwind um, for the model as eaters and, and cooks and chefs you know, explore new ways to, to, to earn and, and eat, you know, good food. Yeah. And, and I guess there's a, a different, I don't know if variance is the right word, but almost like emotional variance to a platform like this, where, you know, if so, if you list your spare room or your whatever property on Airbnb and that doesn't get any bites and you have to lower your prices or something, it's a room. It's like, you know, whatever, maybe I, I, I thought the paint color was great and people disagree, but if I like convince my mom to go on this platform, cause I think she's got a couple banging dishes that people would like, and, it, and we don't have the same type of biters, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a, a different type of, um, emotional gymnastics that need to be maneuvered for people. But I guess that's true with all restaurants, all restaurants, you know, it's, it's usually a, a labor of love and your cultural cuisine that you're sharing. It's totally a labor of love. It's totally a labor of love. It's, it's, um, it's a different experience. It's connecting to cuisine that you otherwise wouldn't be able to access. Um, they just launched in LA a few weeks ago um, where I'm based. And so I've been exploring the different cuisines and, and really, you know, you're, you're just, um, you're surfacing, um, food that you otherwise wouldn't be able to, to uh, you know, eat. And so um, very excited by, you know, very excited about what Chef can offer uh, because of that sort of emotional aspect of it. Yeah. So if you had to kind of break down your weeks pre or post COVID, I, I wouldn't imagine that there's a huge amount of difference, maybe just the, the locale where some of this stuff transpires, but, you know, how much of your time is, 
you know, actively kind of supporting the portfolio companies versus going out and searching for, you know, the next company out of the YC batch or what have you versus I guess now that you're a partner, you're probably taking a more active role in fundraising as well for the subsequent funds that come on. So I would say um, I, to be totally honest, I, I enjoy supporting the portfolio companies and the founders we work with um, um, a lot. And so I probably spend half of my time um, on that a week, uh, whether that be um, searching for candidates or talking about, you know, whatever near term priority may be for that week or month or preparing for the next fundraise, um, back channeling on a candidate, everything and anything that comes up with early stage company building, it's, you know, it's obviously unpredictable and um, can be can take any shape or form. Um, and then the rest of that time, you know, is, is split between um, sourcing, assessing a new potential investment um, and internal fund matters. Luck luckily, we do have uh, a fun admin team who can um, take on more of that uh, work. So I would say majority of my time is spent supporting portfolio companies and sourcing new investments. That seems like it would be the funnest part for me. I, I can imagine some people would like, you know, just tasting all the different startup ideas that are out there or a certain type of character. They just love going in for like the big, you know, fundraise because the, the check sizes there are, are bananas. I know you guys announced a, a pretty darn large one here in the, in the recent past. But um, to me, you know, once you've kind of decided these, we're in the same corner, we're in the same foxhole together, trying to make this happen and the relationships that get built there. Um, that to me was always like clearly the, the third, you know, if you're dividing into thirds, the chunk that would be maximally compelling from my vantage point. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely the most compelling experience of, of, of this job is really engaging and learning from founders. You know, I view, I view, and I think the team here at Craft views our North Star to really be servicing, um, you know, the companies we work with, whether it be the founders or the teams that they have. And so having that opportunity, both with existing companies and showing new potential companies why we might be the right partner uh, is always exhilarating, right? Because it's a, it's a new relationship, a new opportunity, a new business that you're learning from. So it's definitely an interesting day-to-day -day and unique. Yeah. So uh, another thing that I wanted to ask about is, um, you know, for entrepreneurs and particularly like the newbie entrepreneurs that don't know, they don't have a ton of legibility into just how VC works or kind of the presuppositions of getting on the VC track and the rate of growth that that kind of pre presumes. Um, they might not necessarily appreciate the general, you know, math of a, a VC portfolio in that there's going to be uh, a, a select few super winners that often return or, or account for a majority of the returns of the fund. And, you know, the flip side of that is that either there's a, a, a couple that are just kind of flat and, and not really creating some sort of outsized outcome or a few that kind of blow up and fail and were a worthy experiment perhaps, but not the actual winner. As you're thinking about the allocation of your time, you're talking about, you know, there's these kind of three chunks of you know, finding the new deals, raising the money, and then nurturing the existing portfolio. Within that third of, a, of nurturing the existing portfolio, how do you manage not only like your time, but your energy when maybe, you know, meeting two of the day is this, you know, team that's absolutely going gangbusters. And then meeting three is a company that's, you know, kind of hitting their head against the wall or struggling to maintain or pick up momentum. I mean, I sort of view it as, portfolio companies independent of their 
current performance because this is a long game and um, who's to say that, you know, this, the, the performance will reverse, you know, um, six months from now, 12 months from now. Um, and so I really think that partnering with Kraft, you get that consistent SLA um, because we hold ourselves to that standard, especially being uh, everybody being a former founder and our operator, having empathy for that journey, having empathy for the peaks and troughs and the unpredictability of it. Um, you know, I've, I've jumped on at calls right after putting my daughter to bed or taking a call while giving my daughter a bath. Like it, it's, um, it's a service role is how I view it. Um, I'm addicted to that um, journey and process of partnering and, and supporting the founder because I have uh, an inordinate amount of respect for that individual or that set of team, a team that achieves something with no playbook. Um, and venture just happens to be the job and the vehicle for me to experience that. And so with that as the North Star, it doesn't matter to me like how that company may be doing today or the, the last few months. Um, we're in it, you know, we're in it together. So there's no calculation there. Obviously, I have to just schedule my time, but no, that founder is getting, you know, call back, at least text back and figuring out what the next step is. So um, I wish I had a more articulate answer for you, but that really is the mindset um, for this job. And I would imagine a lot of other folks share that, that, that view. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, bringing general humanity and not just a kind of numeric approach to business in that, you know, maybe the founder of this company and, you know, in this portfolio company and this fund, it's just, they, the, the experiment didn't work, the, whatever, the, whatever, whatever reason is that a startup fails, we could spend the entire episode listing the, the reasons that that may occur doesn't mean that either they might not be um, you know, work, you might not be working together on some other project in five, 10, 15 years, but also, you know, even outside of that very utilitarian kind of calculation, just, you know, once you have made, brokered that agreement to invest in their company, there is a degree of kind of partnership and kinship and, you know, that just comes with how you behave with people where you've made that significant of a decision. Yeah, a hundred percent. And um, it's very important to me that um, our founders and the teams that work with our founders feel that um, from Kraft and everybody at Kraft um, on both teams, the investment and operating side. Um, so 100%, it's, it, that's the only thing we can control. There's a lot of things that we can't control in this job, to your point, a lot of reasons that a startup may succeed or fail. And, but ultimately, I think what we can control is how we, how we work with that founder being responsive, um, anticipating what needs they may have on the recruiting front or if they're asking a question about um, marketplace liquidity, how to think about what KPIs to focus on, so on and so forth. So, um, 100%. This is this is definitely a partnership, and this is a long-term partnership as well. Right on. So, uh, speaking of craft, um, uh, 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 I don't even know if I would go so far as to say it's a trend, but we've we've kind of seen some uh, companies where it's not you know the founder necessarily coming in to um, you know, say, hey, here's the next big idea in the VC firm getting behind it, but the, the VC firm having a, a thesis or a view or seeing an opportunity in the market and then really throwing their weight behind acting on that and maybe sourcing the founder or, or really taking an active role in the early days of the company. Um, Kraft appears to have done that with Colin, which is you know, something of uh, you know, 
playing uh, the future of social audio, competing with, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but you know, Clubhouse and you know, Andreessen Horowitz's play on social audio. Can you just talk a little bit about how that went and, and how that differs from the, you know, the, the kind of standard cadence of, you know, founder gets into YC, you hear him pitch or founder gets an intro and therefore has the opportunity to pitch you guys, you like him and, and put an offer sheet together. Yeah. So, so I would um, first say caveat that I'm actually not that close to calling. I mean, David Sachs, um, one of the founders and GPs here at Kraft, um, incubated this um, at Kraft and has built a team around it as well. And it is a craft portfolio company. And I think it's a testament to sort of the builder and operator DNA at Kraft. There's actually other incubations that have been, that are in the, in, in the in process, in process that um, David has sort of alluded to publicly. Um, but I'm actually not that close to Colin and sort of been listening to the same interviews that you're probably listening to. Um, I, I'm not sure it's actually directly competitive with Clubhouse based on how he's spoken to it. Um, Clubhouse, for example, seems more ephemeral. Colin, you know, you can kind of clip highlights. Um, it's a little more structured um, in, in how the room is handled and how it can be distributed. Um, but I do think, directionally speaking, the existence of Colin and the approach that Kraft has taken to incubate Colin is um, a, a signal just of how you know, the, like I said, the DNA is of, of the individuals here. Um, I don't think we can all really get away from operating. I still have the itch too when I speak to founders who inspire me and, and work closely with my portfolio companies. It's kind of, like I said, the favorite part of my job. Um, so um, yeah, I'm not, I can't really, I wish I could like provide all the details on Colin, but I'm, I'm not close to it on day to day. I hear David speak about it internally, but um, it, it really is his, uh, his incubation, his incubation. And I think an example of, um, you know, the, uh, the operating bug that everybody gets here at Kraft. So the, you know, Andreessen, when they had their clubhouse investment, I know you, I know we're kind of countering, I, I'm going to push back and just say there's, there's some counter positioning there in the structured way that Colin has been built to kind of, you know, maybe, maybe fill some gaps that were missed there. But Andreessen sent every single one of their, you know, uh, partners, principals, members of the team to go do a show, uh, have some sort of content uh, plan on on Clubhouse. Is anything similar happening with Colin, where David's like, you know, uh, kicking in the butt, being like, "Where's the, um, you know, where's your show?" No, no, I, I, I wasn't aware of that, that they had done that, but no, no, that there hasn't been any of that. But I'm sure. I mean, I know some of my colleagues have. You know, Chris Massey, for example, uh, our operating partner, focused on government relations. Um, has started a show um, on the same topic. And so, you know, I think it's each their own. Um, if I feel so inclined, maybe I'll get inspired after doing this episode with you um, to, to start a show on Colin. But no, there's, there's been no, um, there's been no, you know, request to do that in the team. Word. So you've, you've talked about um, the kind of operational entrepreneurial DNA of an organization like Kraft. And particularly when I go around to some of the different universities and see the different like startup accelerators there, you know, th there's an entrepreneurial bug, but there's also this, you know, fascination with the specific role of being in VC. And I, I would almost say from my vantage point, this, you know, I could obviously have my own biases and clouded judgments is what investment banking might have been to a previous generation, venture capital occupies a similar space where if you're kind of financially oriented, very, you know, thinking about returns and investing and something that, you know, has, has status and prestige, but also could be, you know, 
compelling and 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 when you have a, a limited view that you might have coming out of school seems like a pretty legible cool career to be in venture capital is checking a lot of those boxes for a lot of the young people that i talk to um so from your vantage point do you agree with the notion that it, you really should get some sort of entrepreneurial experience before you go into vc do you think that that's a prerequisite these days what's your your general perspective on breaking into the industry yeah um it's a good question. And I hadn't known that interpretation or evolution of the perception of venture among, among um, like undergrads. So I, I would say, first of all, I, and I've done, you know, a, a number of these sort of informational type of calls where we talk on the, talk about this topic with folks interested in venture. You know, I, I, I do have a bias toward um, having operating experience or being a former founder and have, and how the, how the additional benefits from that, whether it's intended or not, can be additive to the day-to-day of venture. But that's, you know, that's different from my own journey and my network and how we view the team at Kraft. Uh, there have been very successful venture capitalists who have been career investors. And so I, I don't, I don't, I hesitate to be prescriptive about it, but I would say my observation has been that if you're a former founder and or operator, prior to getting into venture, it comes with a built-in network and having that built-in network or bringing that built-in network to venture from, from your operating days will assist you with you know, looking at a potential investment, getting feedback from your friends with or former colleagues, um, identifying potential investments, um, helping your portfolio companies recruit potential candidates um, because your friends may be, you know, may be of interest uh, to your portfolio company. And it helps you build a perspective and framework on a business model because you were in the trenches as an operator or founder. And so I think those two are huge benefits, um, two examples of, of big benefits um, of being a former founder or operator and how that carries into venture. But again, you know, I don't want to be prescriptive about it because that's just driven by my own process into this, into this career. I candidly didn't even really know about venture until grad school. And so I would say that's great, you know, that uh, the, the sort of up and coming generation is, is a lot more. I, I agree with that, though. The, my observation has been that there's been a lot more mainstream exposure to private market investing. And so I think net net would be great for, for the industry and for, for more companies to, to get started. But um, if I had to pick, I would say former, former founder operators, uh, more interesting journey into venture. And it would also seem that it, I totally agree. There's you know some investors, career long investors, and that's you know how they've made their bones. But if you can speak to your own entrepreneurial experiences, there's also that you know that factor when an entrepreneur is deciding who to take money from. If they have a compelling enough startup where you know you're in competition with other firms to get that allocation in the seed or the Series A or what have you, then they're basically you know maybe they're picking purely on you know valuation numbers and what what the you know specific terms that they're looking for are but they're also looking for who's going to sit on my board who's going to take that you know late night call while after they've put their daughter to bed and who like who am i going to be talking to trading war stories with and that's that's part of the pitch right is that we we've actually been there and you know not seeing exactly what you're seeing, but have our own at least perspective to to share from those um, experiences. Yeah, I'd say generally speaking, most founders appreciate that, desire it. Um, it's a very much principle to principle relationship kind of based uh, assessment. 
you know, when a founder is deciding who to put on their cap table, you know, some founders, and I have met founders that are interested in more just passive capital. And, and that's totally fine as well. You know, it's um, totally a dating process, I guess, when you're fundraising and you find the right match. Um, we just believe that having um, the operating experience uh, is a net net positive to, to our founders. And so, um, you know, we pride ourselves on that. And, um, you know, so far, so good. Um, one of the, at least appears to be big successes so far, um, is another one of your portfolio companies called Pipe. So for folks, we, we've done a video, but it, you know, there was a, over a, a year ago on it, like after one of the very first fundraisers, just a really cool idea. I think uh, Packy McCormick wrote about it and is not boring newsletter. It's just a, a light bulb went off for me. But can you start off just kind of explaining what Pipe is? And then we can talk a little bit about what you've gotten to witness as as Kraft has invested in Pipe and, and kind of gotten to see some of the infrastructure that's being built behind the scenes. Yeah, so, so today Pipe, the product allows companies, typically SaaS companies or, or, or companies with recurring revenue to treat and trade their ARR, their recurring revenue as a portfolio. And Pipe essentially offers upfront capital for that ARR and has they have their own internal underwriting approach, um, essentially giving a Pipe credit score to figure out how much, what percentage of ARR to fund upfront in, in that um, upfront capital. And the benefits to the SaaS CEO, for example, is that they get um, you know, cash upfront, they solve uh, capital efficiency, they potentially convert uh, and, and sort of improve retention long-term. And you know, it's, it's found a very interesting, compelling value prop for SaaS uh, companies. And um, on the, on the buy side, it gives some liquidity to investors who want exposure to that ARR as a product. So, so, so that, that's the, the product today. When we met Pipe, they were, they were called Pace at the time. It was pre-product. It was, I think it was summer, August 2019. I met Harry and Josh. They were also in LA. Uh, they were pre-product, um, but they were serial entrepreneurs. Zane as well, the third co-founder. Very impressive backgrounds, complementary skill sets as well. Tagline back then was turn MRR into ARR, which we thought was um, brilliant from a SaaS perspective. Um, and so, you know, we funded and got to a decision and funded within a week. Um, it was very, it was a very fast decision. Um, since then, they've, you know, as as you've alluded to, they've they've grown quite quickly. Um, the the value prop has continued to resonate with more and more founders and operators. Uh, as well as investors. And I think that's a testament to Harry, Josh, and Zane being former founders and, and just moving quickly as a result of that as well and building a very compelling product. And it's really an extension of this, you know, you could almost like mega trend of finance and fintech generally where these all these kind of alternative assets, if you look at it from the flip side, so not so much from the software company, it kind of makes sense, you know, payday loans have existed forever. Not to say that it's exactly the same, but the idea that you could pull income forward um, as, a, as a way to kind of alter your lifestyle and, and manage your money has existed in different forms for different entities for a very long time. But from the investor side, where they would actually put up capital for something like this, the ability to diversify into something like software revenue, which is I don't want to say rock solid across the board, but pretty darn robust for the, the best companies out there. 
Um, it, it makes sense that as investors look to diversify, look for yield in different arenas, this is a pretty compelling play from the institutional investor side. Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, they they sort of continue to prove out that thesis as they've grown. And, and sorry, I should have mentioned in the beginning, which is the most compelling part to CEOs and companies is that you get all this uh, capital for, for growth without incurring any dilution, which... Um, you know, is, is obviously very, uh, is treasured um, to the company. And so uh, it's kind of a no-brainer, you know, to CEOs and then to your point to institutional investors and um, investors seeking more yield. Uh, it's an interesting new um, asset class and potential category creator that, uh, you know, Harry, Zane and, and, and Josh have envisioned. So really, it's really exciting to watch from ground zero, given when we seeded it, you know, today they're doing much bigger and <laughs> broader things. I'm not as close to the company, given that we see the company, but, uh, you know, it's really fun to watch from the outside now. Is there any degree to which you could be, you know, sowing the seeds of demise for, for VC by creating this alternative for, for growth capital? Um, <laughs> I'll defer to Harry on that, actually. He's, he's the captain of that, that vision as they create the category with Pipe. Um, but it's fun, it's fun to be affiliated with it, that's for sure. Right on. Well, Mike, this has been great. I uh, want to aim towards wrapping up and asking our kind of standard last questions. But before uh, we do that, I want to just give you a chance to uh, share anything else that you're hoping to today that I didn't give you a chance to. No, no, this is great. I, I appreciated the, the opportunity to share, you know, what Craft's all about, B2B SaaS and marketplaces seed to growth and um, really enjoy um, we all really enjoy just working with and supporting our founders. And so I said that earlier and I'll reiterate, reiterate it again. Right on. Well, if people want to connect with you in the digital world, uh, what coordinates can we point them towards? LinkedIn, website, all that good stuff. Um, yeah. Email michael at craftventures.com. Uh, my Twitter is Michael D. Tam. You know, I'm pretty available online. Right on. We're going to link that in the show notes, going deep with Aaron.com slash podcast for every episode of the show or in the podcast app where you're probably listening to this right now. Before I let you go, Michael, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. So I would say, um, because this has served me well, especially to your earlier question on breaking into venture and just um, developing in my career, reach out to that individual you've been wanting to reach out to who you you know initially think that they'll they won't respond or they'll say no to your ask, whether it be a quick coffee or respond to a question. More often than not, you'd be surprised at, at the response rate. And that's, that's really helped me out as well. So I would say do the, shoot that cold, cold email out uh, with, with intention and uh, hopefully it'll come back to you. Are there any instances that you can share where, where that really was a, a game changer for you? Yeah, many. I think we'll go over time here. You know, whether it be landing at the first startup L, you know, emailing Talia Frankel, the founder back in the day in 20, 2010, um, and ultimately got me started on this, on this path into venture. Um, to the, the, the hundreds of reach outs I had um, sent out while full-time at Uber, uh, trying to break into venture, whether it be investors or founders, anybody who sort of had that affiliation. Um, to even today, you know, I, I reach out to um, veterans of the space to try to understand their lessons learned and if they have any guidance as well. Um, 
to founders, you know, who are obviously very impressive. And I think maybe they won't be interested in me or, or craft, but um, they, they typically do respond all across um, all of those profiles. And, you know, it's, it, it's just been, it's fun. Like people are willing to help and, and engage. And um, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be your blocker, your own blocker, I guess is, is my point. How, it sounds like with you doing that so often, you have to have a framework or a kind of specific intentionality that you bring to those cold emails in order for them to yield success for you. Can you talk at all about if it's a rule or principle or anything that like, you know, either you get a cold email and you're immediately turned off or you always make a point of including X, Y, or Z? Yeah, I would say it's twofold. I, I always make it a point to, to, you know, I think it's intuitive to say this, but to personalize it to why I'm reaching out give them context to who I am and how it relates to who they are and the, the specific ask. Um, and then I would say the second part, most more importantly, is the follow-up um, and making sure that they know you're committed to um, whatever the ask is here and that there's, it's, you're going to go out of your way to go out of your way to make it worthwhile for them. Um, so I almost view the cold, the cold outreach as, um, as a two-parter, you know, in terms of your effort. Um, but uh, yeah, I think personalizing the outreach is is sort of my broad framework, and I, there's the more nuance there. And then and then definitely personalizing the follow up um, is important as well. Uh, well, from my experience, we we get cold emails semi regularly for like folks wanting to be on the show and other things like that. It's very clear when it's templated and when the the personalization is just you know the the m most minuscule iota of like misspelling my first name and considering that personalization. So go above and beyond. It right. tends to work out. Yes. Agreed. Beautiful. Uh, well, Mike, this is Michael. This has been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing some time with me. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Aaron. We just went deep with Michael Tam. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Michael. If you're interested in more interviews with venture capitalists, then I would definitely encourage you to check out our past conversation with Andy Ratcliffe, who talks about non-consensus ideas, venture investing, and startup success. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.